All right. Um, at this time, we would like to ask that everyone in attendance mute if you're not muted already and stay muted throughout the meeting. Good evening and welcome to the Oklahoma City Tuesday night Big Book Study Group. My name is Wendy Zimbrich and I'm an alcoholic. Join me for a moment of uh, silence followed by the set aside prayer, which is in the chat if you'd like to follow along. Dear God, please set aside everything I think I know about myself, this book, my illness, these steps, and especially about you, God, so that I might have an open mind and a new experience with all these things. Please help me to see the truth. Amen. This meeting is a big book study. We recommend that you have a big book in front of you to follow along. If you do not have a book, we want to make sure that you get one. Please post in the chat section if you need a book, and a member will connect with you to make sure you get one. We would like to remind you that AA is not affiliated with treatment centers, detention centers, or other facilities. The experiences shared in this meeting are not necessarily the opinions of this group or of Alcoholics Anonymous as a whole. Our facilitator is not an expert on the big book or the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. We have simply asked the facilitator to share their experience, strength, and hope as it relates to the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. With respect to the seventh tradition, we are called to be self-supporting. As such, we suggest that you take an active role in supporting your districts, areas, intergroups, and GSO during this time by sending in your contribution directly. Out of respect for the facilitator and others in attendance, we ask that you stay muted throughout. Do not post in the chat during the meeting. And be mindful of your activities if you're sharing your video with the group. Thank you. This is the AA Preamble. Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other that they may solve their common problem and help others to recover from alcoholism. The only requirement for membership is the desire to stop drinking. There are no dues or fees for AA membership. We are self-supporting through our own contributions. AA is not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. It does not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorses nor opposes any cause. Our primary purpose is to stay sober and help others to achieve sobriety. I have stated that I'm an alcoholic. Are there any other alcoholics present? Yay, there they all are. Welcome to the meeting. The format of this meeting is the facilitator will share their experience with the big 7.30 and then the floor will be open for questions. The meeting will end at 7.45. Tonight we are on page XXIX of, it's in the doctor's opinion, Paragraph that begins, uh, men have cried out to me in sincere and despairing appeal. So please give a warm Zoom welcome to our facilitator, Cliff G. Hey, everybody. Good to see everybody. I'm Cliff Gooding. I'm a grateful alcoholic, sober since August the 15th, 2001. And for that short amount of time, I'm as grateful as I know how to be. In Spearfish, South Dakota tonight, today, I was going to set it up where you all could see these great vistas, but when I did, I looked like, like a cutout, so I moved the camera so over here, and it just kind of drowned me out, but it's beautiful and snowy in South Dakota. Of course, the people in Arizona and Florida don't want to hear about that, but at any rate, it's beautiful here, and we're warm and having a good time. Be back in Oklahoma tomorrow, so I'm glad everybody uh, is here tonight. <clears throat> uh, I didn't know how many spring breakers we might get, so... Uh, uh, or be off and about, but it's good to see everybody. So here we go. We're kicking it off. We talked last weekend about the problem that uh, Dr. Silkworth had identified, that being that uh, the allergy and the obsession that, that he was able to identify expressed itself in the fourth edition anyway on XXV, triple I, XXIX, that idea of uh, obsession, spree, remorse, repeat. And Stilkworth called that, if, it, if that was you, if you identified with that, that that was a uh, very little hope for that person's recovery. But like every good textbook, when they give you a problem, they offer a solution. And, and uh, Silkworth had discovered, which had been given to him by Bill, who had been given it by Abby, who had been given it by Roland, who had been given it by Dr. Young, this idea of a spiritual experience, as they call, talked about being a psychic change. That something, had, that something happened to these people, which created this total reversal of their ideas, attitudes, and emotions. 
And so here we have it, where uh, we're going to pick up right in the middle of double XIX in the fourth edition. Men have cried out to me in sincere and despairing appeal. Doctor, I cannot go on like this. I have everything to live for. I must stop, but I cannot. You must help me. Faced with this problem, if a doctor is honest with himself, he must sometimes feel his own inadequacies. Although he gives all that is in him, it is often not enough. One feels that something more than human power is needed to produce the essential psychic change. Here again, <clears throat> Dr. Silkworth talking about something more than the medical profession can, can provide, something beyond that. Though the aggregate of recoveries resulting from psychiatric effort is considerable, we physicians must admit we have made little impression upon the problem as a whole. Many types do not respond to the ordinary psychological report. And so what types don't respond to the ordinary psychological reports? The real alcoholic, that person that is this hopeless, seemingly hopeless state of mind and body that I can't drink, I can't not drink. Those types are the ones that have that struggle. It says I, at the bottom, I do not hold with those who believe that alcoholism is entirely a problem of mental control. I've had many men who had, for example, worked a period of months on some problem or business deal, which was to be settled on a certain date favorably to them. They took a drink a day or so prior to the date, and then the phenomenon of craving at once became paramount to all other interests. And so paramount, you all remember that uh, Paramount movie pictures, you know, the picture production company, the movie production company. When they come on the screen, they have this huge vista, this great big mountain, paramount above everything else, the top, the very top. It says, at once became paramount to all other interests so that the important appointment was not met. These men were not drinking to escape. They were drinking to overcome a craving beyond their mental control. This idea that once I take a drink, <clears throat> I'm, I'm gone. You know, um, this, this, uh, this obsession hits me and there's nothing I can do about it. And then once I take a drink, I'm off and running. The crazy part of alcoholism is that I drink on a dry mind. It's the, it's the piece of the puzzle that keeps the people that we live with in, in constant state of flux. That's the piece that gives the Al-Anons who are with us that I'm so grateful for here every week. It's, the, it's that piece of the puzzle that I look at you and say, I'm never doing this again on an absolutely dry mind. I go out and pick up a drink again. And Dr. Silkworth expressed that these men were not drinking to us. We're not drinking to escape. They were drinking to overcome a craving beyond their mental control that once they started, then they couldn't stop. And so it's that the two pieces that once I start, I can't stop. I can't drink. And then I can't not drink. Every time I tell you, I'm never going to do this again. Here I am again. I'm off and running. There are many situations which arise out of the phenomenon of craving, which cause men to make the supreme sacrifice rather than continue the fight. They're talking about killing themselves. The classification of alcoholics seems most difficult and in much detail is outside the scope of this book. There are, of course, the psychopaths who are emotionally unstable. We're all familiar with this type. They're also going on the wagon for keeps. I'm quitting forever. This is it. Swearing off forever. They're the over-remorseful and make many resolutions, but never a decision. I'm done forever. They're the type of man who is unwilling to admit that he cannot take a drink. He plans various ways of drinking. He changes his brand and his environment. There's the type with whom believe that after being entirely free from alcohol for a period of time, he can take a drink without danger. Man of 30 that we're going to read about. There's also the manic depressive type who is perhaps the least understood by his friends and whom a whole chapter could be written. Then there are the types entirely normal in every respect except the effect alcohol has upon them. They're often able, intelligent, friendly people. I always bring my guys when I'm sponsoring them and taking them through the book. Always, when we get to there, I just look at them and say, this is not you. You're not this person. So we're really clear about that, that you are not normal in every aspect. And then suddenly you just drink and it's insane. This, this is not you. You're those ones above that, right? All these and many others have one symptom in common. They cannot start drinking without developing the phenomenon of craving. It's everybody who, when Wendy said, 
are there any other alcoholics here? And everybody who waved their hand or nodded their head or, or put their hand up or, or lifted something. If we started talking about our drinking, some of us would look similar. Some of us, there might be a, a lot of us that would have some similar patterns, but there would be a lot of us that would be different. There's going to be spree drinkers, weekend drinkers, closet drinkers, uh, 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 everything in between. But the one thing the book says, and Dr. Silkworth says, the one feature that every alcoholic has in common is that once we start, the bets are off. And once we start, this phenomenon of craving hits it. He says it, it's limited to only this class of drinkers and not anywhere else. Not, nobody else does it affect this way. It says the phenomenon, as we have suggested, may be a manifestation of an allergy, which differentiates these people and sets them apart as a distinct entity. It has never been by any treatment which we are familiar permanently eradicated. The only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. Have to stay away from it. And uh, until until Abby Thatcher came and brought the message to Bill Wilson and Bill Wilson got sober, that abstinence was the piece of the puzzle. We couldn't get that because Silkworth would tell these guys and gals as they were leaving, now listen, <clears throat> Just don't drink. You just got to stay away from it. And, of course, they would all say the same thing. We've all said many, many times, I won't. You can count on it. I'm in. I'm not drinking ever again. And, of course, within a matter of days, weeks, or months, they're back at that town's hospital again. But that's all they had. He didn't know what else to do but say, just don't drink. The conclusion of all that was that they couldn't just not drink. And, and for any of us here tonight that identify as alcoholics, if we could just not drink, well, you don't need to be on this book tonight. You can go be doing something else, you know. You don't need to be here if you can just not drink. If I could just not drink, I don't need to be here. I don't need to do the things necessary in order for me to stay sober if I could just not drink. That's why sometimes when we go to AA meetings, we hear things that you can't reconcile with the book. Like, just don't drink and go to meetings. If I could just not drink, I'd, I don't even need to go to meetings. If I could just not drink. The trick is I can't do that. I don't know how to just not drink. That's the piece of the puzzle. So sometimes when we say things in alcoholics, and we have good intentions when we say that, you know, we, people are good spirited. They really, they're trying to be helpful. It's like, don't forget your last drink. Well, the book tells me, and we'll get there in a few weeks, that there's going to be a time where I get to my consciousness. Then I, I, you know, I have failed many, many, many times to forget my last drink. Don't not, you know, that it just slides right off and I can't remember. It's got to be something else. Got to be something more than just that. Just don't drink and go to meetings. Don't forget your last drink. Book, I can't reconcile that with the book. So we have to watch, I think, what I say in AA meetings because I'm trying to be helpful. I'm trying to give good, you know, suggestions. And that is a good suggestion. Just don't drink. But the book says there comes times when I can't do that, that there's something else has got to happen for me. Dr. Silkworth calls it, we got to have this psychic change. The step talks about it being a spiritual awakening. That's what I need to have in order for me to not just drink. It says here at the bottom, it says, this immediately precipitates us into a seething cauldron of debate. Much has been written pro and con, but among physicians, the general opinion seems to be that most chronic alcoholics are doomed. Chronic just means always present, that this alcoholism, this, this uh, seemingly hopeless state of mind and body that I can't drink, I can't not drink. And he says they're doomed. That's a death sentence for people like us. And until this, until this book was written, it was all, it was a death sentence. If we couldn't get some kind of spiritual experience, as the Oxford Group people had harnessed, if we couldn't get something like that, it was a death sentence. Little hope of their recovery. Here he calls it doomed. That's not a lot of hope for a guy like me. And step one in Alcoholics Anonymous is meant to be a, a step of hopelessness. And I hope it always is. 
at the top of triple XI, what is the solution? Perhaps I can best answer this by relating one of my experiences. About one year prior to this experience, a man was brought in and was treated for chronic alcoholism. He had been partially recovered from a gastric hemorrhage and seemed to be a case of pathological mental deterioration. He had lost everything worthwhile in life and was only living, one might say, to drink. He frankly admitted and believed that for him, there was no hope. So he understands. He gets. He's hopeless. I get it. I'm going to be in this hopper forever. I'm, I'm, I'm hopeless. I'm in this loop of obsession, spree, remorse, repeat. He gets it. Following the elimination of alcohol, there was, was found to be no permanent brain injury. He accepted the plan outlined in this book. One year later, he called to see me and I experienced a very strange sensation. I knew the man by name and partly recognized his features, but they're all resemblance ended. Have you ever looked at any pictures of yourself? I know that I've seen a lot of people's pictures. They'll post them on in, in, in closed groups. Some of them are a little more brazen than that and post them on their private page. I'm on their public page, but I've seen people's pictures of the day they were arrested. And here's a four year, two year, one year, 10 year picture. And you look at those people on, you know, on their, some of their worst moments and then look at them a year, two, five years into recovery, whatever. They don't even look like the same people. They look, I mean, you wouldn't, if I saw that if the two people, one after the other came, I couldn't tell you one from the other. Because when we get sober and start taking care of ourselves, we just, our, our physical appearance, everything changes. You know, we start taking baths regularly, brush our teeth, you know, little simple things like that. Showing up for work on time, you know, kind of crazy stuff that most people take for granted. But the resemblance of the person before and the person after is just stark that it's so different. It says one, one year later, uh, I know the man by name and partly recognize his features, but they're all resemblance in it. From a trembling, despairing, nervous wreck had emerged a man brimming over with self-reliance and contentment. Contentment. That's an interesting word. Contentment was not part of my vocabulary prior to coming to Alcoholics Anonymous and taking the actions directed in this book, we talk about serenity, contentment. I'm cool with either one of those. I didn't have that prior to coming here. I talked with him for some times, was not able to bring myself to feel that I had known him before. He could recognize him, but this is not the guy he's known before. The guy he knows before is a tongue-chewing, babbling drunk. And the person sitting in front of him is a well-spoken, cleaned-up, uh, a guy full of self-reliance, contentment. He's at peace. He knows who he is. He knows his connection to God. It says that uh, to me, he was a stranger. And so he left me a long time has passed with no return to alcohol. This is Peg Parkhurst. And you might recall some of you who've been here before and, and went through the first study. And if you haven't, that's cool. This Hank Parkhurst was uh, really motivated. He was really Bill Wilson's cheerleader. He's the guy that wrote the chapter to employers. And uh, he employed Bill early on in his little honest dealers auto polish deal. He was, uh, he was quite the promoter. You can probably give a lot of credit for the book being published for him pushing Bill to get it done. When I need a mental up spirit, mental uplift, I often think of another case brought to me by a physician prominent in New York. The patient had made his own diagnosis and deciding his situation hopeless, had hidden in a deserted barn determined to die. Just going to go drink himself to death. He was rescued by a searching party and in desperate condition brought to me. Following his physical rehabilitation, he had a talk with me in which he frankly stated he thought the treatment a waste of effort unless I could assure him, which no one ever had, that in the future he would have the willpower. You'll notice the quotes because he believes at that time it's about willpower, the willpower to resist the impulse to drink. And that's what people, you know, we look at people look at us like, you just need to suck it up, buttercup. You need to get some willpower because they see us 
exert our willpower in other phases of our life, perhaps, or their own experiences, I can take it or leave it. So you need to do that. You need to just exercise a little willpower. And so it's a perfect thing to say, well, look, I just got to get my, I got to get my forces gathered up here, this willpower thing, and I can beat this. So you got to guarantee me I can get my willpower all juiced up to get this done. The bottom of the page says his alcoholic problem was so complex and his depression so great that we felt his only hope would be through what we call moral psychology, some kind of spiritual awakening. And we doubted if even that would have any effect. However, he did become sold on the ideas contained in this book. This is Fitz Mayo, by the way. His story in the, in the first edition was called, I believe, Our Southern Friend. He has not had a drink for a great many years. I see him now and then, and he is the finest specimen of manhood as one could wish to meet. I earnestly advise every alcoholic to read this book through and through, and perhaps he came to scoff. He may remain to pray, William D. Silkworth, M.D. And so Dr. Silkworth here gives a, paints a gloom pic, gloomy picture, but says there's hope for the alcoholic that has this spiritual awakening, this idea that psychic change that has to come through. And he says that happens as a result of the program of action, he opines, that he endorses, that's laid out in the book Alcoholics Anonymous, the first 164 pages, 12 steps that we have here. And so we start with Bill's story. And Bill's story, you have to remember, let's kind of take a historical perspective for a minute. And let's look at Bill's story for what it is. Bill's story, <clears throat> for the first, uh, when the first edition, all the printings came out, Bill's story was chapter two. The doctor's opinion was the first piece of the book. When you opened it, there it was. Why was Bill's story written? Why was it published? Why is it important? What is its significance? Let's think about in 1939 when the book was published, Alcoholics Anonymous existed in New York, and little surrounding communities, Akron, Ohio, and its surrounding communities such as Cleveland, and not, not much anywhere else. I'm on uh, page one of the book, Mike. So it wasn't much anywhere else. And so the idea was when we published this book, if somebody in Bismarck, North Dakota, for God's sakes, wanted to get sober and they wrote for the book, they wrote in for a copy of it, they would get this book, they would read Bill's story. It was like the hospital visit in print. It's like Bill Wilson sitting at your bedside like he did with uh, Bill Dotson and tell you his story. It's the, it's, the, it's the hospital visit in print. And so we know that, it, that identification is the greatest tool we have in Alcoholics Anonymous. It is the thing that we have to relate to each other, to hook the other alcoholic in is identification. <clears throat> and so Bill's story headlines and now move to chapter one after the second edition of Alcoholics Anonymous been, began to be published. It moved to chapter one. And its idea is here is the relationship of the insanity to the illness. This idea that to look at this from the, uh, the 12th step in print, this idea that Bill's story shows the decline of alcoholism and then it shows us what happens as a process of the steps. And so what we get here is the idea to see the progression of alcoholism where it took Bill from the beginning to the end. There's a lot of discussion about how did we move the doctor's opinion from chapter one to the, um, to the Roman numerals. Uh, some people say that you know, uh, they didn't want a non-alcoholic on uh, opining about the 164. They wanted 
you know, only alcoholics to have produced what was written between one and 164. There are some theories that talk about Bill Wilson wanted his story to headline. It was important he be the first. Whatever that is about, this is what we got. That 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 uh, chapter one, page one is Bill's story. Not and you know, I just think the doctor's opinion is significant. It was significant to me. That's the piece where I began to understand alcoholism. I certainly began to identify with Bill Wilson when I began to read his story. But initially, when I looked at Bill's story, I don't have anything in common because I still am looking for the differences. I mean, here we got this broken down stock speculator in New York. I don't live in New York. I'm not a stock speculator. But when I had someone sit down with me and read this, and ask me questions, I begin to identify. And that's what Don did for me. And I, I think that's our calling. I think that's what we should be doing. I, I was helping people under this book. When I got sober, it seemed to me it was written in Russian. I mean, I'm reading it. And I'm not, I'm not getting it. Uh, Cause I unfortunately only understand Chinese. So, I mean, I was in a big disadvantage here. I needed an interpreter. I needed someone to take me through the book and talk to me about alcoholism and talk to me about these stories and these, what it meant. And that's what Don did for me. So what we're going to try to do here over the next few weeks is to try to ask questions to get us thinking. So chapter one, page one, Bill's story, war fever ran high in the New England town to which we knew young officers from Plattsburgh were assigned. We were flattered when the first citizens took us into their homes, making us feel heroic. Here was love, applause, war, moments sublime with intervals hilarious. I was part of life at last. And in the midst of the excitement, I discovered liquor. So life is good for Bill. He describes it here as he's a, a young soldier. He's all decked out. The people love him. He's getting all these accolades and people are, he says, I was part of life at last. And I remember Don and I reading this and he looked at me and said, did you ever have that moment where you felt like you were part of life at last? And I thought back through my history and, scratching my head and I thought yeah yeah there were times that I felt like that he said okay he says in the next it says in the first paragraph it says I forgot the strong warnings and the prejudices of my people concerning drink in time we sailed for over there I was very lonely and again turned to alcohol so Don looked at me and he said when you were lonely did you ever find yourself drinking and so I had to, again, think back through my history and it wasn't, I didn't have to tread very far for, I was saying, yeah, yeah, there were times when I got lonely that I would, that I would start drinking. And suddenly in the first paragraph of this book, I'm beginning to identify with Bill Wilson, where before I would read this and think, no, this ain't me, because I want to look at When I began to look at the similarities Bill drinking of, of, of when he's drinking, why he's drinking, I began to identify. It says on page one, we landed in England. I visited Winchester Cathedral. Much moved, I wandered outside. My attention was caught by a dog roll on an old tombstone. Here lies a Hampshire grenadier who caught his death drinking cold, small beer. A good soldier is never forgot whether he died by musket or by pot. So I tell all those young kids coming in, hey, they talk about smoking dope in the big book. Go check it out, man, just to get them in it because you got to trick them sometimes, you know. So, But here, pot doesn't mean that. It means intemperate drinking is what it means. Doesn't have anything to do with the green leafy substance here. It's just intemperate drinking. Um, and the reason Bill was caught this, his buddy, Ebby Thatcher, this guy's name was Thomas William Thatcher, and it caught his attention by the name, and he went and read it. Now, I want you to think about this. I don't remember. I don't know what, what exact year Bill was over overseas. I, I can't recall at the moment. But it was a significant period of time from there 
to not to December 1934 when he quit drinking. And this made such an impression on him. This dog roll, this writing on this old tombstone made such an impression on him that years later when he gets sober and begins to write this book that he can recall it by rote. He remembers exactly what it says. And if you've ever seen pictures of that old tombstone, which you can get it on a postcard, it's exactly what it says. And he recalled that. This, this made a great impression, and we'll see why as we kind of go through Bill's story. Ominous warnings, which I failed to heed. 22 and a veteran of foreign wars, I went home at last. I fancied myself a leader for had not the men of my battery given me a special token of appreciation. Now, they, everybody got one. So just know that, that if you were there, you got a, a, this little special token of appreciation. But Don looked at me once more. And he looked at me and he said, did you ever fancy yourself a leader? And of course, I could just, I didn't have to go back very far at all for that. I mean, I think so well of myself all the time that absolutely, I mean, I'm, I'm the guy. I was president of this, president of that. I mean, I'm just the guy, right? I'm just a natural born leader, Don. You know that. And he looked at me and he said, you know, <laughs> you and Bill have a lot in common right here on this first page, don't you? And Bill Wilson and I do have a lot of things in common, a lot in common. The next line, my talent for leadership, I imagine. See, that's a tricky word for my Bill's delusional, right? He's fantasizing. I imagined he doesn't really done anything with any leadership capabilities, but he's pretty sure he could. He's got potential. You guys get that. He's got potential. I imagine that my talent for leadership would place me at the head of vast enterprises, which I would manage with the utmost assurance. I mean, Bill sees himself 22, a veteran of foreign war. He's given this special token that everybody got. He sees himself totally different probably than a lot of people see them. He sees himself uh, a leader. And uh, imagine himself as the head of, uh, you know, great corporations back in that time. But when we, when we dissect Bill's deals, I imagine he spends a lot of time daydreaming, Bill does. He spends a lot of time thinking about how great Bill is. Don asked me that question. You ever spend time thinking about how great you are? God, I you hate to. It's hard to dodge these questions, you know, when you're pinned down by your sponsor to kind of come up with some snappy answer for you. And you want to deny it, but you know you're dying. You know, I know I'm dying. I can't. <clears throat> I go, yeah, yeah, that's me. Page one, I'd read this book before. This made no sense to me. Suddenly, I'm beginning to see, I'm beginning to figure out that me and Bill got a lot of, a lot in common. Page two, I took a night law course. Now this is really starting to sound familiar. And obtained employment as investigator of a surety company. The drive for success was on. I'd proved to the world I was important. Oh, Don loved this. He just looked at me and he said, did you ever have the drive for success? Yes, yes, I did. Did you ever have feel like you had to prove to the world you were important? These are hard questions to duck, man. Yeah, absolutely I did. I feel like I have to do twice as much to feel half as good as everybody else in the world. I don't know where that comes from. Nobody ever said that to me. Nobody ever said, hey, you got to do twice as much as everybody else just to feel semi-normal. Nobody said that to me. Yet that is inside, internally, that's my mix. I'm looking at everybody thinking, I got to do twice as much, you know. Got to do twice as much as these people. Just to gain ground. It says, my work took me about Wall Street. and Little by little, I became interested in the market. Many people lost money, but some became very rich. Why not I? Don said, did you ever want to be rich? 
Well, yeah, I grew up poor, man. I grew up without, in, without indoor plumbing a piece of my life. I know what that's like. Of course, I want to be rich. I want to be rich and be somebody. Then I'll get respect. Then I won't be that kid anymore, right? I won't live with that shame hanging around me. Too embarrassed to have friends over. Of course I did. Of course I wanted that. Of course I did. He says here, it says, I studied economics and business as well as law. Potential alcoholic that I was, I nearly failed my law course. At one of the finals, I was too drunk to think or write. Though my drinking was not yet continuous, it disturbed my wife. Now, <laughs> I remember Don looking at me and saying, listen, did your drinking ever bother anybody? My God, I'm on wife number four. I can just point to four people immediately that it bothered, that it seemed to them to be a bit of a problem. No, not for me, but for them it was. My mom and dad, employers, they seemed to think my drinking was a little bit about a half a bubble off plum also. And here, Bill, first indication that his drinking began to disturb other people. All my friends in Al-Anon on here, they're going to be able to identify this. They, they begin to notice they're here because they begin to notice somebody else's drink and begin to disturb them. Right, Candace? Drinking begins to disturb other people. But, Bill, we do – drunks are great at this. All the Al-Anons, they'll know this. They can, tell you, they can give you this paragraph in rope, man. <laughs> Bill says in here, says, we had long talks where I would steal his, steal her forebodings. That means he manipulated her. He would steal her forebodings by telling her that men of genius can see their best projects when drunk, that the most majestic constructions of philosophical thought were so derived. I mean, man, he's selling fast talking to slow thinkers. That's all he's doing, man. He's just selling a big old line of bull here getting Lois to buy it because she loves Bill. And i got to tell you, alcoholics attract the most wonderful men and women. I swear to God we do. We attract the most wonderful people. You know, we do. And we just break their hearts. And they just hang with us. Some of them hang with us to the bitter end. You know, they just we confound them. And I'm sure there were moments for Lois where she felt just so broken in this whole deal, just holding hope against hope that Bill's going to catch it, man. He's going to get it here. It's just going to, you know, he's just going to grow up one day. And I'm sure Bill laid all that in about, I'm a, you know, veteran of foreign wars. And my God, you know, you just don't know. Of course, you never, never saw any combat. But I mean, if he had it, he probably would have been able to tell her but bill just lays it on he's just he's a manipulator he's a master manipulator and so don looked at me and said your drink could disturb people yeah i did disturbed a lot of people and by the time i got to you people everybody in my life i had pushed away except for my wife and i pushed all her people away from her. I moved her friends out of the picture. I had isolated her with me. She would go to work, come home, because she was too afraid to take me anywhere. She would take me somewhere. We're not going to drink tonight. Nope, not drinking tonight. Always the same thing. You know, I'm, I'm out of control. My drinking bothered people. Back to Booger says, by the time I completed the course, I knew the law was not for me. The inviting maelstrom of Wall Street had me in its grips. Oh, oh maelstrom. Anybody remember uh, Johnny Depp made those movies about the, uh, the Black Pearl, the big ship, Pirates of the Caribbean, huh? Remember that? I think it was the second one. There were, they were floating the pearl, and uh, this huge uh, whirlpool developed in the ocean and just suck the ship down right that's a maelstrom it's some it's this it is this uh, uh huge that just sucks everything into it and so when bill describes it, it says the inviting maelstrom it was just being sucked into it of wall street 
had him in the scripts. Business and financial leaders were my heroes. Out of this alloy of drink and speculation, I commenced to forge the weapon that would one day turn in flight like a boomerang and all but cut me to ribbons. Boomerangs are significant for Bill. When he was a young boy, he was reading the stories about the Aborigines making boomerangs. He thought that was quite interesting. He told his grandfather, I'm going to make a boomerang. Of course, the grandfather says, hey, you can't make a boomerang. You have to have special wood. You have to have special tools. You got to have, you know, you just can't go pick up a piece of wood and and it work. And uh, you, you can't do that. Only the Aborigines know how to do that. You can't do that. That was the wrong thing to say to Bill. Bill spent all summer trying to make this boomerang. And finally, he took his headboard and cut it out. Called his grandfather one day, and grandfather comes out, and he says, watch this, and there it goes. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen a boomerang, if you've ever been around, watched them on TV, but I'm going to tell you what's so beautiful about Bill's description is, is the the outgo of a boomerang, I mean, just it just twirls and goes out, but it hits an apex. There's a point out there where the boomerang just points and stops. And then it just comes right back at you. And you got to know what you're doing. It almost took his grandfather's head off. It came back so fast, you know. And so Bill's account here says it would turn like a boomerang in flight and all but cut me to ribbons. His drinking had a point where he was it was fun, fun with problems and then just problems. And it turned on him and almost killed him. That's what alcoholism looks like for some of us. And on the way out, it's beautiful. Early on, it was great. Early on, I had fun. And then somewhere out there, the corner got turned. And then it became a miserable existence. It says here, living modestly, my wife and I saved $1,000 and went into certain securities, then cheap and rather unpopular. I rightly imagine, here Bill daydreaming again, he's delusional, right? I rightly imagine they would once someday have a great rise. I failed to persuade my broker friends to send me out looking over factories and managers, but my wife and I decided to go anyway. He couldn't con those people, so he just said, the heck with that, I'm going anyway. I had developed a theory that most people lost money in stocks through ignorance of markets. He had a good point here. I discovered many more reasons later on. We gave up our positions and off we roared on a motorcycle, the sidecar stuff with tent, blanket, the change of clothes, and three huge volumes of financial reference services. Now, you all seen those pictures, I bet, with Bill on the Harley and Lois and all this stuff. And, and Bill spent most of his time in the sidecar because he's drunk, right? I mean, just drunk. On the top of page three, it says, our friends thought a lunacy commission should be appointed. Perhaps they were right. I'd had some success at speculation, so we had a little money, but once we worked on a farm for a month to avoid drawing on our small capital, that was the last honest manual labor on my part for many a day. He says, we covered the whole Eastern United States in a year. At the end of my, at the end of it, my reports to Wall Street procured me a position there and the use of a large expense account. The exercise of an option brought in more money, leaving us with a profit of nearly several of several thousand dollars for that year. Bill did really well. His research was really good. And the stuff he brought back was good to the people that on Wall Street. And it uh, it bought him favor and he would go down and he would uh, go to these plants where they were manufacturing and he would uh, on the three o'clock, you know, three shifts at the three o'clock shift change, he would go to the bar where the, where the, (laughs) the morning shift was completing, going to have a few drinks and pops before they went home. He would go there and he would talk to those plant workers about what they were doing. And he would get some inside scoop about what was happening in those plants. So he was gathering Intel We'd call that insider trading today and be in prison. But back then, Bill was just gathering information and learning about it, right? He would report that back and put these in his volumes, go back to uh, uh, New York and become, and they would promote him and give him a position and some money. On page three, it says, for the next few years, fortune 
through money and applause my way, I had arrived. Well, this was a killer. There's a killer question for you. I remember Don looking at me. He said, you ever feel like that, that you had arrived? Yeah, I had. You bet. Yeah, I had. You bet. I had, uh, when I was 20, uh, 27 years old, I was a first name partner in a, in a, uh, 15 man law firm in Oklahoma city had 15 people, staff people and 15 lawyers. They all reported directly to me, had the whole floor with those big, tall office buildings in downtown Oklahoma city. You know, I had arrived 27. It was unheard of. Nobody my age was a first name partner in a law firm at that age. And you know what I always thought? When I get to there, I'll be okay. When I have this, this will be it. When I get to here, that'll be it. You know, it's just like that toy in the first grade or whenever I was a grade. If I can get that toy, I'll be okay. I'll make me happy. If I can, if I had that guy's clothes, if I had her parents, if I had his good looks, if I was as tall as that guy, if I was as athletic as him, if I could just get this, if I could have her, that car, it's always something. If I can get the external picture to look right, I'll be okay. Guess what? I got there. Wasn't okay. I remember the day it crossed my mind. Is this it? I remember it just like I'm sitting here right now with you good people. I remember when the thought crossed my mind. Is this all there is at 27 years old thinking, is this it? Disappointed one more time that that don't fix me. That that's, this is not the answer. Bill says, my judgment and ideas were followed by many to the tune of paper millions. The great boom of the late 20s was seething and swelling. Drink was taking an important and exhilarating part of my life. Now, think about this for a minute. Bill began to drink. Liquor came into life when he was happy, lonely. Then begins to start drinking and bothering other people, right? Goes on this big deal. He drinks when he's out. He says, as a matter of fact, he says, I, I'm drinking so much. It's the last manual labor I would do for a long time. Now, Bill's at Wall Street. He has arrived and liquor is taking this exhilarating part of his life. I mean, booze is just working for Bill. It says, there were loud talk in the jazz places uptown. Everyone spent in thousands and chattered in millions. Scoffers could scoff and be damned. I made a host of fair weather friends. Friends, the boomerang going out, it's looking good so far. Yeah, Bill's looking good, man. He's got the booze going and he's got, he's making money and he's got all these people. It's looking good going out. The flight, the boomerang, whew, looking sharp. My drinking assumed more serious proportions, continuing all day and almost every night. Uh oh. The remonstrances of my friends, that means the protest, remonstrances, protest. The remonstrances of my friends terminated in a row. People think that's row, it's a row, that means a fight. The protests of my friends ended in a fight, and I became a lone wolf. You ever have friends talk to you about your drinking? You know when your friends who you drink with begin to talk to you about your drinking? The ones you say, if I ever get bad as that guy, when that guy starts talking to you about your drinking, it's up for a suspect. You know, then I got to look at it, right? I just get other friends. Why? Because I don't want to talk about my drinking. I don't even know that drinking is my problem. I think I just like to party. I don't want to talk about that. I don't know I'm alcoholic. I'm I have no idea about that, but just don't talk about my drinking. I like doing that. And so this would happen to Bill. People would come to him and say, hey, man, listen, you got to slow down. And he just, it'd be a fight, be an argument. He'd say, I'm just done with you. You're off the Christmas card list forever. I'm just done with you. And he becomes a lone wolf. He pushes everybody out of his life. Don looked at me and he just said, isn't that love? Haven't you just pushed everybody out of your life? Who are your friends? Who, who do you have? Who do you go out with? Who do you come over? Who comes over to see you? What do you go do with people? And who do you do it with? Nobody. Nobody. The boomerang has turned. You know, it turned for Bill. It turned for me. It's turned for all of us. Everybody on the screen identifies themselves now. It's turned for us somewhere. And begin to come back with us. And it come, when it starts coming back, <laughs> you, you get scared. Fear ought to be classified with stealing. Remember that? 
It says there were many unhappy scenes in our sumptuous apartments. There had been no real infidelity. Listen, I can tell you what that means. No real infidelity. I've never experienced no real infidelity. So I don't know what that means. For loyalty to my wife, helped by times of extreme drunkenness, kept me out of those scrapes. I know what that means. I, don't, I do know what that means. In 1929, I contracted golf fever. We went to once to the country. My wife to applaud as I started out to overtake Walter Hagen. This is, we would think, Ricky Fowler these days, right? The great golfer. So I'm sitting at home. I look at Lori one day and says, hey, you know what? I'm just quitting my job. I'm going to become a professional golfer. She would look at me like I was insane. But Lois just says, okay, and just goes with Bill. All right, I'm in. Because they got all the scratch right then. So he's just saying, okay, let's go. And so it says liquor caught up with me much faster than I came up behind Walter. I began to be jittery in the morning. Now we begin to see some effects of the drinking that Bill has. I became jittery in the morning. So when he gets up, he's got a little tremor, right? I just got a little bit of a tremor. You know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to take a, a little snip of the hair of the dog. Settle that right down. Smooth that right out, man. Golf permitted drinking every day and every night. It was fun to cream around the exclusive course, which I inspired such awe in me as a lad. I acquired the impeccable coat of tan one sees upon the well to do. The local banker watched me whirl fat checks in and out of his till with amused skepticism. Bill's ego is just run is just firing on full pins right here, man. I mean, his ego is pushing the limits. I am so eat up with myself that I'm just going to just, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to become a professional golfer. I'm not one, but I'm going to become one. Think about that. <laughs> right? Just think about it. I mean, i got some good buddies. My buddy Stewart's on here. He's a great golfer, golfs a lot. He's got good friends. They always go on the sober golf deal every year. There's a bunch of them that go. But the thought of any of those guys just one day getting them saying, you know what, I'm just going to become a professional golfer. I mean, I'm sitting here thinking, I can only think what Lois must have been thinking when that happened. And I love these guys, but I, you know, I know they're good golfers. They have a good time. But I'm thinking, not Ricky Fowler good, right? I mean, they're not pro golfer. My buddy Carl up there in Rochester is a great golfer. I see him going golfing all the time. But I'm thinking if he called me one day and said, hey, Good news. I'm going to become a professional golfer. I say, hey, Carl, have you started drinking again? I mean, it's got to be my question, right? So when Bill's, when Bill is, uh, 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 he's doing all his egos, just out of control. It says on, on the top of page four, on the middle of page four, it says abruptly in October, not 2029, all hell broke loose on the New York Stock Exchange. After one of those days of inferno, I wobbled from a hotel bar to a brokerage office. It was eight o'clock. So the market's been closed since three in New York time, right? So it's five hours later. Five hours after the market closed, the ticker had, was still clattered. I was staring at an inch of the tape, which bore the inscription XYZ, it's just given the initials for the corporation, minus 32. It had been 52 that morning. So it had been 52 as share stock was trading at $52 a share. It was now trading for 20. It had dropped $32 a share like that. Over half the value just gone. Since I was finished and so were many of my friends, Bill Wilson lost over $80,000, 1929. He lost 80, over 80 grand that day. If you did the, if you did the math on that, I can't remember. It's, it's a close to a million and a half, something like that. It wiped him out. 80 grand back then would be like a million and a half for us today. Somebody's got can do that while we're sitting here. Look it up. Google that. Tell me the exact number. It's a significant chunk of money. Bill went busted in one day. Got wiped out. He said, uh, the papers reported men jumping to death from the towers of high finance. This disgusted me. So now Bill's saying suicide. Ah, that's gross. That disgusts me. He said, my friends have dropped several million since 10 o'clock. So what? Tomorrow was another day. He says, I went back to the bar, right? I went back to the bar. I mean, these people are jumping, committing suicide, but he's going back to the bar. He said, man, 
tomorrow's another day as I drank the old fierce determination to win came back. Now, listen, here's something significant in this paragraph that I want you guys to see. You see the word right kind of about two-thirds of the way down. It says a jet death from the towers of high finance. I want you to circle that, underline it, highlight it. It's significant what Bill Wilson is writing here. You see high finance is capitalized. What do we know about in this book when you see something like that capitalized? It's personal pronouns for the power. It's for God, right? And he's saying that these people, his friends, were jumping from their God. The towers of high finance, capitalized. This had become their power. High finance had become their God. And they were jumping from them. The towers of high finance that had failed them. Self-reliance failed us. It says, the next morning I telephoned a friend in Montreal. He had plenty of money left and thought I'd better go to Canada. By the following spring, we were living in our custom style. I felt like Napoleon returning from Elba. No San Helena for me. But drinking caught up with me again. See, wherever Bill goes, there he is. Caught up with me again, and my generous friend had to let me go. This time we stayed broke. We went to live with my wife's parents. Now, this is a bad deal for Bill. I mean, I'm sure Lois's parents were great people, but the idea in 1930, if you went to live with your wife's parents, you know, Bill's a big-time stockbroker, and I want you all to have some deference to the time here. And no disrespect to the ladies here at all, but I want you to think of what the time period is we're talking about here. Bill has gone home to live with his in-laws. He can't hold a job. It said, I found a job, then lost as a result with a brawl with a taxi driver. Mercifully, no one could guess that I was to have no real employment for five years or hardly draw a sober breath. My wife began to work in a department store, coming home exhausted to find me drunk. Now, this is significant. 1930s, and ladies, please remember the time period. Women very rarely worked outside the home. And if they did, and they were married, they were usually living with their parents because their husband was a drunk. You with me? So the double whammy here is Bill's a drunk. He's living with his in-laws. His wife has to work. He can't support her. This is a black guy. In 1930s, this is a big deal. It's a big deal in society if you've got a guy that can't go out and earn a living for his family. That was the right head of the household. So this is this is bad for Bill, bad for bad for Lois. She's having to go out and earn a living. It's not the way it was in 1930. The roles have reversed here. She's out having to earn a living, and she comes on every day to find Bill drunk. On the top of page five, I became an unwelcome hanger-on at break brokers' places. Excuse me, I'd like to see Mr. Johnson. Hang on a second. Mr. Johnson, there's a Mr. Bill Wilson here to see you. My God, tell him I'm in Brazil. <laughs> tell him I died last week. Tell him anything, but I ain't going to see him. They don't want to see Bill. Why? He's a disgrace. Bill's a drunk. I mean, he causes problems. If you talk to him about his drinking, he starts fights. We don't want Bill around here. Give us a bad name. Just do anything. Get rid of him. An unwelcome hanger-on. I cannot identify with that. Don asked me that question. Did you ever become an unwelcome hanger-on? Damn right I did. That law firm that got evicted, that one I told you about, I was so proud of, is this it? I just quit working. I just quit showing up for work. It got, we got evicted from that building. 30 people lost their jobs in one day. You know what they did for me? I just got passed around kind of for about, to about four different law firms over two years. These people would take me for six months, figure me out. I'd go somewhere else. I'd be a disaster there. An unwelcome hanger-on. I remember Don looking at me and said, you've been an unwelcome hanger-on, ain't you, bub? Yeah. I have. I've been that guy. I've been this guy. I've been the guy staying home for three years and Lori was working. More commonplace for wives to work in 19, in the late 1990s, not as big a deal, but significant based on the potential that I had, you know, cursed with potential. We know how bad that is. 
I've never really done anything, but maybe I could have, who knows? An unwelcome hanger. See, when we begin to really break down Bill's story, we begin to look at our own experiences and really look at our life and really look at comparing Bill's to my life, my experiences. Guess what? I match up across the board. I'm really grateful for you all. I really, really am. Wendy, I love you, honey. It's all you. Thank you so much, Cliff. That was a fantastic description of Bill's story. Um, 